Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Welcome to tonight's program. I, I hope you enjoy it. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, our first guest is David Lewis. He's here to help educate business owners and those in leadership roles about the uh, the best dress code policies. Uh, it, summer is upon us, and we all know that sometimes people uh, – come to work in what are inappropriate uh, attire to be comfortable. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Don. Good to be here. Well, as we always do with our guests, first, before we get into this topic, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here. Sure, Don. Um, so I've been in HR for 28 years, and for the last 13, I run a business called Operations, Inc., we're a 50-person human resources outsourcing consulting firm based in Norwalk, Connecticut. And we help companies with a wide range of HR-related issues. And at this time of year, we're fielding more and more calls as it relates to dress code. As um, the weather gets warmer, especially throughout the country, you become a little bit more challenged with how to set that code and how to enforce it. And hopefully I can share a little bit of insights and some good advice in that regard today. Well, let's get right into it. Um, what should a small business leader n- know and how uh, to prevent? Uh, I know early in my, uh, well, in my middle career, I had a situation where I uh, hired a woman who was dressed perfectly for the uh, interview. She was a young girl, and when she came to work, she was a totally different person. And uh, I had a deuce of a time adjusting to her and her to me. But um, that's my experience. I now leave the floor open to you. Tell us what we should do. Well, I think the most important thing is that if you can reduce a dress code to an actual documented policy and then use the policy as the backdrop for any conversation when somebody is violating that policy, it's a far better place to be than just making either a snap judgment call or even worse, approaching an employee and just telling them you're not dressed appropriately. Um, Because the argument back from the employee absent of a documented policy is going to be, how would I know? How would I know that how I'm dressed is inappropriate? And saying a couple of the wrong things here could lead you into an entirely different problem in the form of creating what's referred to as a hostile work environment or a potential claim of sexual harassment. So the best advice is really to put down a policy on paper, 
Make sure you distribute it to all employees and confirm that they've received it. Make sure it's clear uh, and that employees have a place to go if they have questions. And then enforce it. Uh, and that use that as your backdrop for any issues that arise from that point forward. Well, you know, I'm an older uh, uh, man. And what I think is appropriate is not what this younger generation uh, thinks is appropriate. What are the what are the components of a good uh, dress code document? It's a really great question. I think part of it is really just about being as specific as you can about what is considered appropriate dress, and uh, try to be very careful about how you describe what would be considered inappropriate dress focusing on the clothes versus on what the clothes um, are doing or what they're covering or not covering. Um, so when it comes to the code itself, <clears throat> talking about um, slacks, talking about skirts at a knee length or longer, talking about um, uh, dress shirts with collars, things of that nature, those types of specifics are key. And, you know, if you can insert images where it's appropriate to do so and without um, embarrassing anybody uh, or taking using photos that you don't have permission to use you know giving people some specific visual examples is helpful um, the other thing is that you know you should start your code by taking a look at what you've used as sort of acceptable behavior to that point and make sure therefore that your code is indicative or reflective of what companies uh, have practiced up until then uh, and, you know, it, the more you can be specific about the do's and the don'ts, the easier it is for both the employee to follow the policy as well as for the employee to understand when you've told them that they have violated it. Well, um, let me go a step further. You put in a code and you have a woman showing up with, let's say, uh, uh, a barely concealed uh, breasts or uh, too short uh, skirts. How do you? Um, uh, I certainly wouldn't go to that person without having another person with me at at the time, preferably another woman. Um, how do you uh, handle a situation where if you have all of this and that yet they're still um, violating it, what do you do? Well, I think you raised some good points there. The, the idea is that the, any type of confrontation involving a dress code violation needs to be handled carefully and ideally needs to be handled with the presence of a third party, um, of a witness, if you will. Um, companies should always have their human resources representative be a participant, if not the primary communicator in that meeting with the manager being sort of the third person in the room to witness um, the discussion. Um, with that said, you know, the conversation very simply is that, listen, your, the attire that you have on today is not consistent with the company's dress code policy or practices. Um, and, you know, taking the next step, again, depending on the circumstances and depending on how great a concern the company has, that can be everything from, in the future, please don't wear this outfit, all the way to we need you to go home and change. Uh, and the company has a right to do any and all of those things if it feels that there has been, again, a clear expression of the policy and a clear violation of that policy. But even more importantly, you have to be consistent. 
um, you can't allow yourself to be in a position where the employee can point to another employee in the organization who is dressed the same way or recently dressed the same way was allowed to do so and essentially the company didn't do anything about it. Inconsistency is one of the biggest problems in these instances. So you need to be sure that if you're going to enforce the policy, you need to enforce it for everyone. Well, you're right about that. Uh, one of the reasons uh, I invited you on the program is we ran in, into a situation of a, a small business that we know here in New Jersey where uh, the owner's wife dresses, uh, I, I guess the best way of putting it is inappropriately. And uh, he has a picture of her um, in a, a belly dancer's outfit on his desk. And uh, he ran into a problem. I mean, that's clearly not being smart about it. Am I right? Well, it's not just about, in this particular case, a dress code violation per se. You also have to be mindful as a business owner that whatever is going on within your workplace, within your environment, you have a responsibility for, and you're subject to the opinions and perceptions of others in the workplace about that behavior, meaning if any of the employees in the example you gave me who saw that photograph or who sees someone who's dressed provocatively and inappropriately and non-professionally in the workplace could not only have a concern about the company not enforcing dress code, but also could turn that into a claim for what's referred to as hostile work environment, where essentially the behavior by this individual and their dress or by this um, individual <clears throat> having a photo of this nature in their office and subjecting other people to see it in the workplace could constitute a hostile work environment and could subject the business to complaints by um, other people in the workplace, aside from just being concerned about a dress code violation. Well, you, you've opened a, a whole new area, uh, if I might, might pursue it a little further, uh, you, you know, we hear about these lawsuits of hostile work environment, and uh, uh, you see people suing all the time. Um, the human nature being what it is, and uh, are we today being uh, subjected to a much higher standard than we were 20 years ago, uh, in your think, opinion? Yeah, I think I think... Let's use 30 years ago as a better gauge, I think, because if you go back to the mid-'80s or the early-'80s, you start to see a significant change in attitudes in the workplace. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, greater, you know, there's a greater sensitivity, a greater level of awareness. Um, you know, I think dress code in one respect is partly to blame because people are far less inclined to dress in suits and ties and more formal wear these days in the workplace and that's only opened up companies to have more casually attired individuals. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's always been, or at least for the, certainly the last 25 years, there's been a much greater level of sensitivity towards behavior in the workplace, uh, and specifically uh, more and more claims related to workplace harassment and hostile work environment. And, you know, I think it's it's much easier for someone in the workplace to complain about behavior that offends them than it is for companies to eliminate completely any and all perceived offensive behavior. So, 
So it, it, it is a struggle, uh, and I think it is more difficult today than it ever has been before. Well, uh, small businesses um, uh, tolerate a lot more and are a lot looser in, in their organizations than uh, uh, bigger corporations who, who have the time and resources to do it. Uh, what what two or three things would you say a small business should really uh, think about uh, in this uh, in this area? Well, you know, we see all too many small businesses who are <clears throat> operating completely on a reactive level. Uh, they're reacting to a complaint. They're reacting to a lawsuit. They're reacting to some kind of an investigation by a state or a federal. Governing body like the Department of Labor or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, and that's a really lousy way to operate. Um, you're you're on the defensive. You generally don't have a lot to be able to to do to essentially um, manage the um, you know manage the issue uh, as effectively as you'd like, and you tend to wind up um, making some very expensive decisions as a result. So my advice is for companies to go out and become a little bit more educated, um, whether that's hiring folks like us or just identifying someone in your organization uh, as being the owner for getting to become familiar with or more familiar with HR law and best practices. And there's just too many ways to do that to not do it. You can find that information online if you want to read about it. Uh, and there's tons of information on state and federal Department of Labor websites. You can go to virtually any employment law firm in the country, and they're offering webinars and seminars on basics of HR law. Um, or you can go to even Chamber of Commerce events and other business groups that are running these types of educational um, events. I think the biggest issue we see is that businesses have this arrogance about them where they think they're both above the law and where they think that there are no laws in place and they just get to decide what's fair and what's not fair and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. You know, those are the businesses that spend tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on um, lawsuits and on legal defense um, because they just don't get it. So you know, getting a greater level of education and understanding about your vulnerabilities before you're in a defensive posture is a far better step, in my view. Well, uh, I'd like to continue with you and ask you another um, uh, area, if I may. Um, uh, we were talking about it before we were getting. I sit on the board of a medical marijuana uh, a nonprofit in here in New Jersey, which has the, uh, uh, the strictest uh, rules about uh, uh, dispensing it of any in the nation, and you're in Connecticut, and your 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 state is gearing up to do it. Um, it, it because of that, I, a lot of things about medical marijuana come across my desk, and uh, I'm just wondering, um, uh, as I asked you uh, before the meeting, um, uh, many companies have a policy against hiring people who. Uh, Test, uh, test positive for things like marijuana. Um, what does a small? What should a small business do to, um, uh, or, or any business for that matter, uh, in, in this area? If 
if, for instance, an applicant tests positive and they don't know, uh, they don't mention their medical marijuana, or they come to the workplace uh, with with marijuana, what do you what do you suggest to them? Well, you know, this is like any other controlled substance, and I think what a lot of businesses are failing to realize is that there are already guidelines out there that are there to protect the business as well as to um, mandate or require the employee who is taking whatever the medication may be to, in, in instances where it could impact their ability to perform the job or in instances where it could impact their ability to qualify for the job, they have to present, um, you know, essentially the appropriate documentation to show that they're being treated or that they're, they have a prescription or what have you. Um, you know, businesses don't by themselves go buy a drug testing kit, test people, and then send the test off to just see if there's a positive or a negative. They use third parties to go ahead and do the testing for them. And any reputable third-party organization, and I can't think of one that isn't reputable, uh, is going to ask the individual being tested a series of questions. It's important that the individual answer those questions honestly, uh, and that would include indicating if they are being treated with medical marijuana for whatever the malady may be. Um, The real challenge comes when the business gets the phone call from the testing company and they say, hey, we're, we're about to test this person that you want to hire, but he just filled the form out and indicates that he is a regular marijuana user because, let's say, he has migraine headaches and that's been prescribed for him. Um, the, the big issue then is what does the business do? What are your rights as an employer in that instance? And without getting into all the details here, um, the the rights of the employer should be communicated and explained by the by the organization that they are um, using as a testing facility. It should be covered with them so that they're properly advised by the testing organization exactly what they are allowed to do, who they why they could be allowed to eliminate a candidate versus when they have to essentially accept that someone who is um, who's using marijuana for purposes of that type of treatment still is potentially qualified and shouldn't necessarily be disqualified, I should say, from the position. It all comes down to an understanding of the law, um, respectful, being respectful of the fact that there are laws in place, and obviously using the right vendors here. And if you don't feel you have the right vendor, then before you make a judgment call on your own without knowing all the facts, talk to a lawyer. Um, the best advice always is talk to your lawyer or your consultant and be honest with your lawyer. Um, uh, if you, I'd like to, for you to stay on a few more minutes. And uh, w- what do you see today are the major um, HR issues facing uh, companies in general and small businesses in particular? I think the biggest one right now that's staring everybody in the face is the upcoming impact of the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, if you've got, an empl- if you've got a company with more than 50 employees right now, um, you really need to get yourself educated on what the impact may be and get yourself prepared for what could be a very different and very challenging open enrollment period as you renew your, next, your benefits the next time around. Most of our most businesses, over 80% of them, renew around January 1, 
And that's when a lot of the teeth in the Affordable Care Act is going to come into place. The other issue, which is one that we find constantly with new clients of ours, is companies really not understanding that there is a law out there that both determines who gets paid overtime and that requires that you pay overtime to certain individuals within your business. This again goes back to the point I made earlier about business owners having a certain arrogance about them and thinking that as long as they're fair and they're good and their employees like them, that they can decide to do whatever they want and pay people however they want. And nothing can be further from the truth. There, there, there is a major piece of legislation that's been around called the Fair Labor Standards Act that defines that. And again, business owners need to understand that law and abide by it because uh, the cost for not complying um, can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, even for you know a few employees not getting paid the proper way. Well, isn't there a, a major case out in California that was just decided where, uh, 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 I forget the, the company, where they, uh, uh, they fought the classification and, and won? Uh, how do you, uh, I know it had to do with uh, uh, outside salespeople and people who worked outside the uh, office. And uh, some were, uh, it was a class act of a, if I recall correctly, a class uh, action that was uh, dismissed. Um, do, uh, do you recall that at all? Or I, I do, and I think you know what it highlights is that the law in itself is incredibly flawed. It's highly subjective. Um, it's it is very confusing for business owners to follow and to understand. Uh, and what's even more perplexing is that when you bring three auditors in from the Department of Labor to conduct an audit of essentially the same company, it's more than likely that you're going to get three different results, and yet these are sort of the umpires on the baseball field. If they're the umpires on the baseball field, how can something be an out, somebody be safe, and something be um, somewhere in the middle? Uh, how is that possible when these three people are all trained by the same organization and are following the same set of rules? And the answer is oh, because of this is how this law reads and how subjective it is. So you do hear often that you know companies are found guilty essentially of violations, fight back, get the um, case reversed, and no longer owe whatever they were told that they initially owed. The problem with those stories is that they fail to document the amount of um, legal hours that are booked to defend the company and the twenty to fifty to hundred thousand dollars that a company could spend to avoid a two or three hundred thousand dollar penalty there's still that expense plus the disruption factor for the people involved in fighting the case that are within the company and what it does to the company's morale your employees think you're ripping them off what does that do to your ability to retain people? What does that do to your ability to, um, to attract people? So, again, it's an area that's very confusing, but that doesn't mean you don't invest some time in becoming more familiar with it. Um, can I ask you, um, uh, for years I've had interns, young college students, come through and, and work, uh, uh, editor work uh, editorial, and uh, I've treated them as if they were, uh, full-time staff in terms of uh, the standards. 
but I, I found uh, with some of these cases that are coming up that I, by doing that, I'm, I'm actually opening up myself to uh, um, uh, the possibility of uh, uh, being sued for not paying them. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Well, you've got a big issue that's been pushed now for the last uh, couple of years related to compensation for interns. And the law is very clear on this. Again, business owners don't quite understand it or do their homework. Um, you need to pay interns, and you can legally pay them two ways. You can either pay them an amount in dollars equal to or greater than the minimum wage that's applicable in your respective state, or you can pay them through credits provided the university uh, that the student is matriculating with agrees to sanction, essentially, the internship as something that can be uh, resulting in them earning credits. And there's a process for that. You don't get to just decide, okay, well, I'm going to give, I'll approve whatever I need to to give this person credit. The school needs to vet you. They need to see what the job description is going to be. Sometimes they need to come out and see your company. Uh, and then the, the student needs to go ahead and complete paperwork um, that will document what they've done over that period. And then at the end of their internship, with all of that documentation, documentation intact, they're essentially getting compensated by virtue of the credits that they're earning which would otherwise have cost them an amount equal to or greater than what they might have been paid on a minimum wage basis. The companies that are missing the boat here, um, and aside from doing a disservice to the student who, let's face it, is usually doing some pretty good work and not getting paid at all, um, they're, they're in violation of, um, of several different laws uh, and could wind up in, uh, you know, in hot water with the student, um, potentially with the university that they go to, and without question uh, with the Department of Labor and maybe even the IRS for violations of failing to pay the individual at least a minimum wage. Oh, I always do my programs in conjunction with colleges, so I guess, uh, and, and they get uh, credit for that as a full-time course, so I guess I am doing it correctly then. You are. As long as the college is doing it in conjunction with you, you're fine. It's, you know, again, it's, it's when companies sort of make that decision that the value is already there, they're getting great experience. I'm not arguing that. I think those are all great things, and if you have the right type of internship, those are probably true. But that doesn't give you the immediate right to not pay them. You need to have some type of a sanctioned program in order for you to be able to, you know, essentially avoid the direct compensation that you otherwise would have to pay. Oh. Uh, I'm learning a great deal. I, ho um, I hope you don't. Uh, uh, you're certainly demonstrating a vast knowledge, which I'm sure our audience uh, appreciates. Uh, the name of your company and it's how people Operations could reach Inc. you or your company? Yes, it, the company is Operations Inc. We're online at operationsinc.com. And if they wanted to uh, talk to you or email you directly? Um, they can they can find all our contact info on our website at operationsinc.com. Okay. Can I keep you on for a few more minutes? Sure. Okay. Uh, you're one of the most articulate guests we've had in a long time, and uh, uh, you're answering a great, great many of the uh, 
questions I know as a small business owner I'd like to answer um, and hopefully they'll uh, contact you for additional help but uh, let's talk about uh, there's much in the, in the discussion about minimum wage um, and uh, 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 interesting thing came up um, uh, Seattle just uh, I think it's Seattle a West Coast yeah Seattle just raised the minimum uh, wage. Um, uh, does that apply to uh, contract workers as well? As uh, and I'm asking because uh, I have a contract worker in uh, um, Seattle who thankfully gets a little bit more than the minimum wage they just did. But if you have a does does that law apply to contract workers as well? well it's a bigger question, Don, because the question becomes. Is the individual who is in this case a contract worker, which I assume you mean is an independent contractor or a consultant, are they legitimately and properly classified in that capacity? Let's assume for a second that they are. Then the minimum wage doesn't apply here to them. Um, they have the right um, in that capacity to charge what they see fit for their work, and it wouldn't have applicability. Um, the individuals that we're talking about essentially where the minimum wage applies generally speaking would be tied to the um, would be tied to their employment relationship with an employer in this particular case specifically in the Seattle area and you know t take a close look at what they passed they um, they passed a law that will be phased in over a series of years not uh, something that you know starting yesterday or today or tomorrow will immediately jump that number up to that $15 level well, we brought up the issue of contract workers, which again is becoming uh, a big issue, uh, and the classification. How do you classify a, uh, a, a contract worker? Um, uh, to me, uh, uh, for instance, my, uh, uh, my uh, webmaster is a contract worker uh, uh, in, in charge of all of my uh, uh the technology side, uh, he, uh, then the question has come up uh, that uh, people like that uh, could be reclassified as workers because, because they are doing an assigned specific task. Could you just address that issue? Yeah, I, I promise mean, this will be the last question. No, no problem. The, so I, I think when it comes to the classification issue, the first thing companies, again, and I, I hate to keep bringing the same theme, but it's true, um, the first thing companies need to understand is that this is not a discretionary item. This is an item that is dictated by documented law. So anybody with an Internet connection um, should go onto their computer, go into their browser, Google, Bing, or whatever they use, uh, and type in the guidelines to be an independent contractor or something to that effect. The IRS publishes stuff, but you'll find hundreds of web references, all of which have the same kind of checklist of characteristics, if you will. Um, you know, I think the old adage is easiest to follow here. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's likely a duck, which means if a person acts and behaves like an employee, if they look like someone who would otherwise be an employee, then you can call them whatever you want. They're an employee, and if you're treating them like anything other than an employee, 
then you know you're in violation of both IRS and Department of Labor guidelines and either one of those organizations can show up at your door and the, there's penalties and fines uh, there's back benefits and back tax payments that both parties would have to pay um, and there's been a greater level of enforcement here and remember when you have a contractor that contractor gets a little document a 1099 form in January if you're doing so correctly on or by January 31st of the following year uh, of their service and that form gets attached to their tax return it's like a giant red flag sitting there waving in the eyes of the IRS department um, who you know and the examiner who if they choose to can look at that and and have that be the first indicator that maybe the person who's on the receiving end of that um, 1099 was misclassified. It, they don't have to hunt for these people. They're just out for display based on that particular piece. So without going into all the rules, it's more important that business owners understand the information is very easily accessible. It's very easy to understand, and they should go out and educate themselves on what those guidelines are so that any misclassifications they may have out there, they can fix now before they compound the problem and create a greater issue and liability for them down the road. Mm. Well, I was at a briefing last uh, week in Washington, and it seems that uh, enforcement in these, these areas is up uh, under this president administration, and that it's moving down from the big companies into the little companies. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I, I think what you've seen is you've seen to a great extent um, a much greater level of, um, of enforcement, um, and it's been by design. Uh, the Obama administration several years back increased the budgets for the IRS and for the Department of Labor as it related specifically to enforcement. And as such, there are more auditors out there, and they, if, if there was a perception out there that they only went after mid to larger size companies, and even there, you know, the, the perception is, oh, no, they don't go after the bigger companies because the bigger companies represent so much in the way of revenue that if you go after them, they'll just move their business out of that state if it's the state chasing them. Uh, I think a lot of the myths out there are, are really just that. They're myths. The bottom line, though, is there are a lot more people out there who are auditing these things and subsequently potentially enforcing them. And you have to be mindful that you have a greater chance today than you did three years ago of being caught in violation of these laws. You've been a terrific guest and a patient guest. Just tell, again, tell the audience your website and how they can reach you. Sure. You can find us. The company is Operations, Inc., and you can find us online at operationsinc.com, and all of our info, including our contact info, is loaded there on the site. Thank you, Dave, for really uh, a really great uh, guest uh, tonight. You've really pleasure. been helpful, I think. I, um, I appreciate you having me on, and I'm happy to, happy to be uh, of help today. And I look forward. We're going to invite you back to talk some more towards the end of the year. Great. Thank you. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? 
Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. Just how dangerous is social networking? Use of websites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the rage. But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidents of bullying, stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video. We're back here waiting for our next guest. Uh, while we have a minute or two, I'd like to tell you about uh, our, our magazine, Small Business Digest. Uh, it comes out uh, uh, quarterly. The next issue is out uh, in July. Uh, sign up for it by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. I think you'll find it very interesting. Uh, this issue, uh, we have several, several stories and a whole section on uh, various food companies and how they've succeeded over the last couple of years and how a couple of startups are really shaking up the industry. We found it exciting doing it, and we hope you will as well. Uh, uh, I mentioned earlier in, in this broadcast about this Washington briefing that I went to, and uh, amongst the things that I found that uh, I thought the audience might want to uh, uh, know about was, one, enforcement is up. Uh, particularly from the Department of Labor, from, I, from the IRS. Uh, two, uh, there are additional regulations coming down uh, that thankfully be postponed till after the November elections, but they are definitely coming down, which uh, will make it uh, more difficult for us to, uh, us as being small businesses, to do the job. Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, I just saw a survey today that the number of jobs small businesses uh, created last month in the month of May uh, uh, was up for the first time in 12 months. That was the ADP study. Uh, Intuit also, uh, with their small business study, also uh, indicated that uh, small businesses are starting to hire a little bit, which is encouraging. But on the other hand, the Intuit study talked about the fact that Revenue only inched up uh, minimally. The average uh, revenue per, uh, they do 500,000 uh, companies, uh, uh, went up relatively uh, uh, little compared to other months. Uh, at the same time, wages, the average wage went up uh, more than at any time in the last 12, 12 months. Uh, the other thing that uh, uh, I think uh, is important to keep in mind, according to this uh, Washington uh, briefing, was the fact that uh, uh, the enforcement uh, 
penalties have also gone up. The average, uh, it's gone up an average of 7% over the last nine months. So uh, if you get caught, not only is it uh, uh, costing you more money, uh, you, but it's costing you more money than it did a year ago. All of these things uh, lead me to worry uh, just how, how small business can, businesses can continue to prosper. We're hoping that they, um, uh, Washington will realize that, uh, as everybody says, they're, they're the dynamo that drives uh, the country, but uh, I myself am a little worried about it. Uh, uh, I would welcome your comments on that. We're doing a survey right now. We did, it's our annual survey. Uh, if you have uh, uh, comments you would like to make or, make or participate in the survey, please go to info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Evan, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Fine. Tell us a little bit about your company and, and why you're here. Sure. Well, I started Pro Martial Arts uh, about, we opened six weeks ago, and Pro Martial Arts aims to prepare children in the community to grow into the next stages of their life by developing essential character development skills. So we're a martial arts school. However, we have a character education curriculum, so we teach children and adults the important values of confidence and respect and discipline and manners and attitude and we have a whole module behind it we had our grand opening about six weeks ago everything's going great so far and you know we're just trying to bring awareness into the community for our brand and you know what we believe in and I'm on this radio station just to again get the brand and the awareness out there of pro martial arts it's www.promartialarts.com, and it's really taking over. You know, there's about 55 locations across the country. Hmm. And but you but you have an unusual approach to helping the community. Tell us a little bit about it. So I mean, pro martial arts. It's a lot more than just kicking and punching and karate workouts, what a typical person would think. So we're passionate about helping our students really build confidence and self-defense skills and character. Um, you know, pro martial arts, they provide strength and flexibility and coordination and balance, all of these things in their classes. But the key component is the life skills that children starting with us at three years old can take with them for the rest of their lives. And our programs benefit everyone. So if they're three years old or if it's a, you know, adult coming in that wants to learn self-defense techniques or maybe has, you know, an interest in kickboxing or boxing, um, it's for everyone. So, you know, kids and members of ours learn that, you know, the value of a lifestyle of quiet confidence um, is extremely important. And aside from that, we do have a proprietary program called the Armor Program, which is our anti-bullying and predator prevention program. So we host that three times a week. It's a class, and it teaches children how to stay safe in a you know in a dangerous world. Unfortunately, we see it on the news every day, right? So there's there's abductions and there's bullying and there's 
you know, gangs and all types of horrible things that we read about. So this really prepares children to know what to do in certain situations or no strange behavior. They know if there's an adult coming up to them, asking them an awkward question, they know that it's the right thing to do to not answer that question and, you know, go go in the car with the adult or, you know, follow the adult into a room or, you know, something that is not the norm. So that's our armor program, and it's really been great so far, and it's fascinating to watch the children and the members grow so fast because, you know, kids are coming in, it's a martial arts school, right? So they've maybe never been in one before, so they're tentative. They don't even want to get out on the mats the first time, possibly, because they're intimidated. Three weeks later, they're the loudest kid in the class. You know, so it, it's incredible to see and, and watch their transformations on a daily basis. Well, in in, in to, today's world, we're living in a much more dangerous world than when I grew up, and I grew up in a very tough neighborhood. Right. But, uh, 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 it, it was Newark, New Jersey in a time when it was very difficult. But, okay. Um, uh, part of the problem, if you give uh, young uh, kids the tools to be strong, what's to, pre- what's to prevent them from becoming bullies? Well, I mean, we teach them specifically, you know, how to not be a bully by the life skills education. You know, we don't want somebody going up and verbally assaulting another child, uh, you know, another child or pushing or, you know, making fun of. So that's what we incorporate in our classes, that those things are not right to do. And how do we implement that in the class? We give them two different sheets, which they take home with them, and one is called a jobs list, and that's a weekly list of things that they're doing to help mom and dad or to share with the sibling and be nice in the community. And they have to do those things in order to advance in our program. If they do not do those things, they can't move up in class. So they'll stay right where they are. The other sheet that we give the member is called a good self-discipline card. So it's ten things that needs to be written down um, on something that they've done on their own without being asked. So if there's a child and the child holds the door for mom and dad while they're going out of the supermarket or helps with the groceries or shares the toy with the sibling or does something that's not asked of them, that gets written down and recorded. And once they have 10 things down, they get a stripe on their belt for recognition. And they need three of those in order to move up. So not only coming to our school and coming to class, that's not enough. We want to make them better citizens in the communities so that they'll know not to be the bully. And they'll get it. They'll get it through the curriculum. They'll get it through our message. And, you know, it's important that they do those things in order to advance in the program. Otherwise, they stay in the same exact spot as a white belt with maybe one stripe. And they see all their friends and all the other members advancing and getting different colors and moving up the ranks and... So, you know, the people and the members who come, they get it. They get what we're teaching and they believe in it. That's why they've come to us and that's why they've enrolled. 
Well, you're a small business owner. What have been the um, difficulties you, uh, or obstacles you had to overcome to become become the successful uh, venture you are? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, unfortunately, it's out of my control, but I would have to say commercial real estate. Um, you know, I, I do live in northern New Jersey, and it's it's an expensive place to live. So all of the commercial real estate spaces are on the high side for rental. So the rent prices well, are very high, and that, that was definitely an obstacle in terms of finding a spot in my area that was affordable. And uh, that was an eight-month process. Once I got that out of the way, I went into the construction phase, which is another obstacle, dealing with the general contractors and getting the site up to code making sure everything's running smoothly, deadlines are being met. And once that was done, I was finally able to open. So I haven't had any obstacles so far since opening. Um, so well, it's really talk free about how you, uh, Well, you're the first, uh, first of our small business guests who brought this up. So let, if we could talk a little bit about that, it would be helpful to our audience. How did you solve the problem, uh, the, the real estate problem? patience I waited until I found the right opportunity I didn't even though you know I had left my former job I didn't jump right into a space in a shopping center that I was uncomfortable with that I knew wouldn't work for the business model so I waited and it took a long, a long time and I got very frustrated because I had left my former job in a good situation to start my own new career and here I am, three, four, five months after leaving, and I could, just couldn't find anything. So I really say that's how I solved it, by, by waiting and being patient to strike on the right opportunity once it was presented. And as soon as it did, I worked on it daily with the lease negotiation and the attorney um, to getting the best possible lease term since the reality is it's a 15-year commitment when you sign a, a, you know, a lease where it's a five-year lease and then two five-year options. So you really could be in this space for 15 years and you really want to make sure that it's the best possible deal for the business. Well, what kind of a space did you finally end up with? So I found a space that was in a shopping center with about 13 other tenants. So there was a good mix of tenants. Uh, which brought a lot of traffic into the center via parents, a hair salon, nail salon, get-in-shape-for-women type of facility, uh, more of a personal, private training facility, um, a bagel store, deli, a doctor's office. So it was a good mix of tenants and flow. And it was located in an affluent area. Uh, the median income was high. The population count within three miles of that actual space was about 80,000 people. And the number one thing for me, since 80% of my customers are children ages 5 to 14, was the kid count. And the kid count was about 15,000 kids in that age range within three miles of the store. So on all of those factors, it was check, check, check. And um, I went ahead with it and took the plunge. Uh, I have one more question for you. Did you have to give a personal guarantee? 
On the lease? Yes. Yes, it was a six-month rolling. So it was very limited liability, you know, very limited risk. You know, in the, event that I, in the event that I wanted to pick up tomorrow and say, you know, I'm out of here, I'm not doing this, it was six months of rent. Where, from what I'm told, um, from the attorney side, that that's a very good guarantee. Some might want to guarantee a couple, couple of years. Yes, they usually do. That's that's extraordinary. You're a good negotiator. What else did you learn? In terms of the real estate process, it's tough. And, uh, you know, maybe in, a, in in another world, maybe I would uh, have liked to be a landlord. <laughs> we all yeah, would, that, wouldn't we? Right. Yeah. It's nice to collect, collect on a daily basis. Um, are you enjoying Are you enjoy, enjoying what you're doing? I really am, you know. I always wanted to do something where it gave back to the community, and I'm doing something where... I'm with children on a daily basis and watching them progress. And like I said before, it's amazing to see some of these kids who come in and they don't even want to get out on the mat. And two or three weeks later, after they've had eight or ten classes, they're PIing and they're loud and they're enthusiastic in the class and they're putting their jobs list on their refrigerator at home and they're making sure mom and dad check it and bring it in. And they're into it. So it's great to see. And, you know, I wanted to bring you know, my skill set and my background into a business model that works. And, you know, my two past jobs over the last oh, 10, 11 years were, on one end, child-related, where I ran a basketball company called Hoop Zone, and that was all basketball, skills and drills, parties, private lessons, leagues. And I did that and learned the ropes on that side, and then I went into a completely different role, which was the director of marketing at a health insurance brokerage. So after about six, seven years there, you know, I had left with everything going on in the Obamacare industry and healthcare. It was just a crazy time. It was a lot harder on the sales force. So I wanted to bring those two backgrounds together and mesh them into something that really works for my skill set. And thus far, in the six and a half weeks we're open, we're close to 30 members and, you know, are on track to be at about 80 members come after the summer towards September. And where are you located? We're located at 140 Franklin Turnpike in Waldwick, New Jersey, right off of a major highway, Route 17, probably about 30 minutes from New York City and the George Washington Bridge. And, you know, there's a lot of surrounding towns that are, you know, suburban area with Allendale and Wyckoff and Hohokus, Saddle River, Paramus. So a lot of towns and a lot of families and a lot of children, so it's really nice. They do a lot of community events, and we're scheduled to be at about 15 events over the next 90 days. Now that we finally hit good weather, we're going to be at a lot of outdoor events, festivals and parades and all that good stuff. So I'm looking forward to that, what's coming up. Well, we we want you to come back uh, uh, during the winter and tell us how you're progressing. We're a nationwide um, broadcast, so a lot of our audience can't uh, partake of your uh, uh, services, but I... 
they did learn, if nothing else, I learned a little bit more about real estate, and I hope they did as well. And uh, we want you to come back. So uh, put it in your calendar to give us a call, and we'll bring you back. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me on and, you know, wishing you nothing but the best. Thank you again. Well, uh, we really like people uh, to know a little bit about small businesses and how they're operating. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Don. Have a great one. You too. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics, for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.